tinfoil hat. Oh, what the fuck are you guys even talking about? Global controls will have to be imposed. And a world governing body will be created to enforce them. Welcome to tinfoil hat. We, 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 we go deep, homeboy. Eric, open your mind. Drink. Good morning, Swarm, and welcome to Tim Paul Hat. You know I am. You know I'm here to do. I'm here to rock. Join me as always, Xavier Guerrero and Jay Nice, Johnny Woodard. How are you guys? We're doing good. Good, good Another great episode today. We get into uh, the definitions of fascism, socialism, communism, and the very active minority. And we're going to see parallels, in my humble opinion, to what's happening in this country right now. So once you understand the game plan, you can watch for it and then push back. Guys, I have some great shows this weekend. Tonight... Uh, Huntington Beach, bam, come on, come on, Huntington Beach, I'll be at the rec room with Eddie Bravo, Xavier Guerrero, we got two shows at 7pm, we have a stand-up comedy show, and then Swarm Tank, we answer your questions, and then Saturday night, I'm in Ventura, bam, I'm doing stand-up at 7pm, and then I'm doing my rants and rave, the revival, one hour, me ranting and raving about all your favorite conspiracies come get weird come get weird come do do the combo tickets just do it do now the combo get some bro get some and then calusa california I, eddie bravo xg myself will be that that casino and then fresno we're gonna be the full circle brewing company we are excited we are excited. It's going to be full-on mayhem. Grab your tickets now. If we don't sell a bunch of tickets, we can't come back. So grab your tickets early so everybody is excited about it. And that's it. Anything else, guys? Nope. Now we go. got a, We're going to have a Broken Sam drop-in soon, probably Friday. All right. Again, support show. Go to Rockfin. Watch that. Go, go to Rockfin. Sign up for any of my shows on Rockfin or any of our shows. We have an investment group, uh, Patreon, Cash Daddies, patreon.com slash Cash Daddies. And go to samtriplee.com for T-shirts, cameos, uh, gold and silver, and all the telegram, telegram groups and all the free content you could ever want at samtriplee.com. Are we anything else? Nope. All right, guys, enjoy this episode. It's with Richard Spence, and it's a great conversation. Enjoy. We go deep, homeboy. Eric, open your mind. Drink. All right, all right, let's get into it. Very excited to have this next guest back. He, uh, he appeared a while ago, and it's good that he's back. He is a retired professor of history at the University of Idaho, Please welcome Richard Spence. How are you, Richard? Welcome back. I'm doing well. I'm glad to be back. It's an honor and a privilege. You know, you guys are going through something over there in Idaho, so sending love to the families and sad days, sad days, sad days. It's a, it's a, a kind of strange time here. Um, murders don't happen a lot in a small college town in the Northwest, but uh, this one's, uh, you know, multiple homicide. That's the way it's being being presented and other than that we really don't know much about it 
Do they have any clue who might have done it yet? To the best of my knowledge, absolutely not. There's There's been no, no mention, other than the fact that none of the four people who were killed did it. In other words, it's not a murder-suicide. Right, right, right. Gotcha. Um, so I don't know. We're going to have to wait around and see what happens, as they say. Well, thoughts and prayers again go out to the family. So, Richard, for those who may not be familiar with your uh, last appearance on the show, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and if you have a website or any social media you'd like people to know about? Okay. Um, I'm not a big social media fan. I'm with you. But uh, I, I do have a LinkedIn page if you can contact me that way. Or you can, I still have a... A uh, personal page in the I'm retired from the University of Idaho, but if you go to the Department of History, you can find information, you know, contact information. So, you know, if you have something nice and friendly to say, you can do that. If you want to say something mean, you can not do that. Yeah, um, I'm with you. So with you can you can um, you can find me that way. So, what are the things I'm supposed to pitch? The main thing I would want to pitch today, in terms of, you know, shameless self promotion. Uh, is that uh, I do some work for something called the Great Courses, which is also called Wondrium. Mm -hmm. And uh, they put out a variety of sort of video courses, basically video programs on a huge array of subjects. You should really check that out if, uh, if you're interested. But the one that just came out um, just about a week ago is called Secrets of the Occult, which is 24 episodes on Secrets of the Occult. So if you're interested in that, you might want to go to the Wondrium site and take a look at it. There's also a preview out on YouTube. And other things I've done for them include the Real History of Secret Societies. Um, I've done another uh, course or series called uh, Crimes of the Century, uh, Selective History of Infamy, which is about, well, you know, historical murders. And I'm on a couple of other Wondrium shows, one called The Secrets of Espionage and another one uh, on True Crime. And um, that's in my books. Um, well, let's see, the one that's probably the most relevant to today is uh, Wall Street and the Russian Revolution. Uh, I've also done a uh, biography of a spy known as Sidney Riley, which is called Trust No One. Uh, and probably the thing that I'm, you know, better for worse, I'm best known for is a book called Secret Agent 666, Aleister Crowley, British Intelligence and the Occult, which is about Aleister Crowley, British Intelligence and the Occult. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, you know. This uh, is so, that, so that, that's kind of a plug. I also have a book. The first book I ever did was called Boris Savinkov, Renegade on the Left, which was about an obscure but not unimportant Russian revolutionary. But that is now totally out of print. So, uh, and if you can find a copy, it's more than I can afford. So there you go. So you can't even afford your own book. Well, I could afford it, but I don't want to pay that much for it. Respect. I mean, Respect. considering that that's a book which I made, how much did I make off of that? Oh, nothing. That's how much I made. Unbelievable. Off of Unbelievable. And, uh, so, well, you know, that's that's academic publishing. You know, you just you just do it for the love of it and to prove to your superiors that you're actually doing something useful. This show and this topic and you talking about the secrets of the occult and all that stuff really resonates with me right now because once again I'm being sucked in to everything and I'm just feel like I'm fighting windmills but at the same time I think there's a silent Bolshevik revolution going on in the United States as we speak from many different fronts well funded 
by very powerful investment firms that want to get to a place where corporations control everything. And they're, 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 they're funding all of this chaos. They're rigging our elections. And they're doing all this stuff. And I keep waiting for people to wake up to it. And every time I think we're almost there, I get, get denied again. And this latest uh, election, uh, it's 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 really heartbreaking to watch because a bunch of people that I very much love that I think I, I respect a lot have zero clue of what is going on. And maybe I'm wrong. What is your thoughts on just the modern day? And we'll get into it because you have a couple of uh, things you wanted to talk about. But what do you see going on in the United States right now? Well, that's a huge question. What do I see? Well, the, here again, I'm I'm in place in the position of, you know, historians are, are continually asked about what's going. Usually, we're asked about what's going to happen next. So we're supposed to distill the tea leaves of the past to tell you what's going to happen in the future. And you know, that's a very inexact inexact science. You know, if you were to ask me in a broad term what I see going on in the U.S. now, and I don't say this from a happy place, but I see the general breakdown of a society. I mean, things just aren't working well, are they? <laughs> I mean, and, and, and every sort of front. And yeah. I, I'll give you what seems to be a kind of petty example, but if it's what's on my mind. Um, I'm a dog, you know, a, a, dog owner. I mean, I have dogs and, uh, and they like a particular type of food, which for some reason, the local supermarkets, even though they had it all the time before our pandemic adventure, now it's just sort of like, it's just not there. And it's like, well, there, there's a shortage, a shortage of what? Yeah. <laughs> Is it the shortage to make dog food? I mean, what, what would be sure that wasn't before? And, you know, someone could probably give me a perfectly logical explanation of that. But there just seems to be a lot of the, the random shortages of things. Um, you know, something else that I found short around here for a while was mayonnaise. I got <laughs> short on mayonnaise. I mean, really? Why would there be less of it now than there would have been otherwise? Excuse me. But... So I find all of those type of things. I, I you know I, I would observe that there's a you know, a a general breakdown, or that there, there's some some problem overall in supply and production, but probably more so in distribution. Uh, there are shortages where there didn't used to be shortages. There's also, as we've all noticed, inflation. Everything is getting more expensive. Uh, at the same time, generally our incomes are not increasing. And uh, there's just a, you know, there's a, there's a great deal of, of fear and, and, and paranoia. You know, everybody seems to be afraid of everybody else. I, I agree with a lot of that. You've uh, you've talked about how there is a uh, shortage of a lot of stuff, but what I find amazing is how there's not a shortage of certain stuff, mm -hmm. like liquor in the liquor store. Oh, no, no. There seems to be able to be able to get all that liquor to you. Uh, um, you know, fentanyl seems to be everywhere. <laughs> I love weed. There was never any shortage of weed, dude. Yeah, I'll be honest with you. Not crazy, once. Right? How like certain things are everywhere and there is no supply chain issues with these things. But yet these other things, we can't get them anywhere at all.
And like the baby formula. How did that? How but did, I mean, like I had friends of mine like, yeah, it's kind of crazy. But so much of that also is just like just heightening your state of anxiety, man. You yeah, know? I, I, I think you're right that, that one of the things that you've got is a, well, look, all you have to do is, is look at the headlines. So one of the things that, uh, you know, an easy thing you can go to is go look at Drudge Report. And I'm not pitching Drudge Report, but I'm just saying if you want to look at, you know, all he does is aggregate news headlines. But look at what's featured on that. I mean, I, I tend to avoid looking at it because if I go in and take a look at Drudge Report, what I see basically are 12 different ways to die, at least. <laughs> I mean, it's just this list of either of catastrophes. Um, everything, you know, Absolutely. everything is is it's, it's an anxiety machine. That's all that if you read through, if you read through all of the articles which are there. Uh, you know, I, I think you go nuts after a while because it's it's nothing but fear. Uh, and here's the question that I think you're you were asking earlier, and it, it is one that I'm not I, I can't offer an answer to, but it is a question. And the question is, how much of this fear of all of these things that that are inducing fear and the way in which it is advertised and promoted how much of that is just a system feeding off of itself you know nothing sells like like tragedy you know good I, news I totally agree. impending doom is is one of the things that that people tend to have an appetite for or is this being orchestrated to one degree or another? Is there a kind of deliberate psychological pressure which is being placed upon people in terms of you know the the, the you know inflation, everything costing more, things being sort of just random shortages that seem to make no particular sense? In uh, the thing where I think we've gone a lot of things, gone through a lot of things recently that don't really seem to make particular sense and without going into the whole COVID issue just say that one of the things that I observed all the way through that is that what I was being told the information that I was being told that was accurate never seemed to mesh with what I actually observed and that to me was either a, a kind of general breakdown in a whole system of information, or it was, um, you know, it was an interesting psychological experiment. Yeah. Well, yes and yes and yes and yes to all that, to all that. And, you know, when you start to watch how that thing was rolled out, again, we get into this psychological operation, you know, slowly, but first, you know, these videos from China start leaking. Whoa, man, there's something going on in China. People are just falling in the streets. Whoa, hold on, what? There's this, there's this bat virus? What is, what is this? The news is like, shot. oh, what is it? Well, probably nothing. Don't worry about it. <laughs> Whoa, hold on, what? There's somebody here. Boom, and then it just hammer time, hammer time, hammer time. It was all done to evoke psychological effects and you know we're getting into something and i'd love to hear uh, uh somebody who worked in academia for so long academia right uh for so long and probably whether maybe I, i'm wrong because i went to college i don't remember it being so extreme like it is now you know but it's like this kind of thing that i we talk about on the show all the time is 
smart versus intelligence. And there are some very intelligent people out there who could write you the greatest script, uh, write you the greatest book, uh, author the greatest book. Uh, but if you ask them on a street level how the world works, they have absolutely no clue. They are completely detached from what seems to be happening on a street level. And they seem to be really plugged in to the mass media and what is going on in the mass media. And they parrot a lot of stuff being told because there's a bit of conformity that comes from uh, being intelligent. Like when you go to school, our, our, our school system rewards you for following the rules. Someone's on the principal list. Oh, congrats. You, hey, little Billy, little Billy listens to everything all the time, is a great listener, and, 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 and follows uh, the rules of the class really well. Oh, congratulations, little Billy. And that, that seems to be it. And then the kid who doesn't want to play a game, he gets pounded, and he gets sent to detentions and all this stuff, and he wonders if he's just an idiot. Do you have any thoughts on that? Am I off? <clears throat> Do I have any thoughts on, on academia? Well, I've spent about, you know, I spent my entire adult life in, in, in academia, uh, which means basically, you know, first being a, a graduate student and then being everything from a teaching assistant to professor at, at, you know, 40 years as a professor of history, mostly at the University of Idaho. So I think I have some experience in, the, in that type of field. Um and, you know, you've heard the term ivory tower, the whole thing, you know, that academics live in an ivory tower, which is a kind of, you know, world in some way separate from the other one. Well, that's basically true. Uh, it, it, it's not the real world. You know, I mean, it's not supposed to be the real world. Universities are supposed to be a place of, of learning, of sort of intellectual curiosity. Uh, that's where you go to to expand your knowledge and expand the universe. Um for you, not necessarily to find a job, but it's a place to expand what it is that you know. But it's a peculiar kind of environment, and it's a, you know, the simplest way I argue is that, that universities are a kind of, and I'm talking about, about American universities, are a kind of strange combination of the modern and the archaic. There's a lot of, you know, they have their roots in the Middle Ages. And in a lot of ways, they still function as a kind of monastic environment. Uh, and, and essentially, it's a kind of feudal system. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things that impacts a lot of, of you know, the, the sort of academic training you go through. So when you go through as a grad student, you're, you know, for a number of years, you know, maybe seven, eight years, more, 10 years, however long it takes you to go through and and get that union card to academia, which is called a PhD. That's what everyone is after. And to do that, you have to work under other established professors. And you generally become a kind of academic serf, often called a teaching assistant. Now, the people who, by the way, if you look at the news, uh, you notice are in strike in California. Okay, they 48,000 or so teachers, assistants, graders, etc. I used to be one of them and understand what their grievances are. But part of that is this kind of re rebellion of, of serfs because the main thing is a, as a history grad student or whatever else you have to do, you have to negotiate the whole kind of 
weird personal landscape of the other professors in the department you're working in and, and who likes who and who doesn't like who. Because you can find out that if you're the grad student working under Professor A and Professor A has a personal feud with Professor B, you somehow just got on Professor B's shit list, even though you've never been there. Okay, just because you're a kind of asset of this other person. So you have to do that. You have to keep in mind what people's particular ideological predilections are. You know, you, you have to stay on fairly good terms with these people who are going to do everything from, you know, grade it, it, all the work that you do to set on your doctoral committee who basically hold a collectively the power of life and death over your academic career. So you really don't want to piss those people off. So one of the things that I think that I have observed that this tends to ingrain in many people who go through this process is a certain psychological subservience. Okay, they're, they're very used to playing with, you know, the way that you succeed in that system is that you play within the system, you keep the people happy, that you're, you know, you, 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 you brown nose who you have to brown nose to get through this type of thing. And that, that process just kind of continues. It tends to continue from, you know, your, your committee, the professors you work under as a graduate student, to the other sort of ascended academics in the university administration that you work under, the deans, provosts, presidents above them, the people that you then have to go on to and, and keep happy. So one of the ideas, a, a big thing, which is a topic on campuses, uh, and it should be, is the idea of academic freedom. This is one of the in, things which is enshrined. This is the this is the holy of holies in academia because academic freedom means that within the university environment, uh, faculty are supposed to be free to engage in intellectual inquiry. In other words, to investigate what you want to investigate and to write, to express your views, because, you know, you're, you're, you're supposed to be the, the cast of experts, and therefore you want your experts to speak honestly to you, right? And you want them to be able to speak freely, even though that may mean they may end up saying things that really annoy you or anger you in some respects. So the idea is that academic freedom exists or should exist. The reality is it exists in a very qualified way because, you know, you always have to be careful to some degree. You always have to be watching over your shoulder in terms of what you say, you know, especially if it has anything to do with, you know, things like university policy. And, um, you know, many colleges and universities actually have it as a kind of statute, I suppose you could say, is that employees of the of the university are not supposed to publicly disagree with any university policies. You, know, you can be dismissed for that. That's considered a, a violation to simply disagree. Even if you think that they're completely idiotic, you're not you're never supposed to publicly break ranks in in some respects. So there's always this struggle, and so the idea is that the universities are full of a lot of free thinking, and uh, I, I usually tend to find real free thinking in pretty short supply, because what a, a lot of people had learned pretty well is, you know, that it had been ingrained to them is that you don't rock the boat, uh, you kowtow to those people above you, you curry favor in this feudal system, and, and you'll succeed pretty well. 
So uh, if it sounds like I'm not a true believer in that, I'm not. So how did I manage to survive for that way 40 years? Um, uh, by faking it. <laughs> by, um, by going along with stuff very often that I knew was utter bullshit. Um, but I would, you know, if it, if it was necessary in order to continue to have my, you know, rice bowl to do it, I, you know, I'd go along with it, but I never lost sight of that. It was still bullshit. And, uh, that was, but, but I'm, you know, I, I, I'm fairly pleased that if nothing else, I think I managed to negotiate the treacherous shoals of academia fairly well. Well, uh, I think it's amazing. And uh, I think that's, thank you for that. Because I do feel like that is what happens now when, you know, you see these congressional hearings and they'll be interviewing somebody from a school or a professor and they're like, Hey, what is uh? What can you define a woman? And they're like, I cannot define a woman. You're like, you know what a woman is, but you know what the people in your circle and above you want to start pushing on people. So you begin to conform to that, and you go on the stand and say ridiculous things, which leads to this what I what I believe is cultural Marxism. And a big part that we've been hearing a lot is that over the last couple decades, colleges have been just hotbeds for Marxism and what that represents. And so uh, this and this gets into the Russian Revolution and where we are, in my humble opinion. What are your where would you like to start with that? Like, I know you want to talk about the historical significance of the Russian Revolution, but do you? Do you feel that there is similarities between what was going on in Russia and what's going on today in America? Well, let's, you know, I think that an early sort of term for what you're talking about, it's been around for some time, is the term political correctness. Okay, I can't remember when that actually came. Now, political correctness is a term that comes, you know, that has directly fairly modern Marxist, really sort of communist groups, because it's all connected to the idea of many ways of a party line, that there is the party, which is the, you know, which is essentially the established church. That's what it is, isn't it? And there is the dogma. And uh, this, this was the kind of official dogma you were supposed to have. And my general understanding of it is that political correctness is an operative term came out of Marxist or neo-Marxist groups and universities uh, in the 60s and 70s. Uh, and it was a kind of litmus test for ideas and for people. You know, one of the things you constantly had to test yourself on within these groups is whether you were ideologically correct. Were you taking the correct view of things? Were you, were you following the, the, the party line? But then this sort of passed into, you know, from those essentially Marxist circles, this of which there are a great many in universities, uh, it is a definite presence, uh, sort of seeped into the, 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 the collective language. But the question that always came up that I always would, would ask whenever somebody said, well, you know, it's politically correct, was, well, what politics and whose correctness? <laughs> I mean, we're all, and, and this would always, I mean, the thing is, is that, Whatever sort of outward obedience to political correctness, you know, the idea of not rocking the boat, which I mentioned before, is, is kind of ingrained into academic training. 
And that was pretty easily to translate into going along with political correctness. But, you know, people would always, they would say something to you to go, well, you know, it may not be politically correct. Uh, and, you know, and always sort of half whispering this as if it would be overheard. So the concept was, is that there's something called political correctness and that apparently there's some, it has some authority. And see, that's what I can never understand, you know, Whose politics, what correctness, and why does this have any authority? I mean, the point is, I may say something and you may disagree with it. And, you know, my response to that is, well, so what? Right? <laughs> I mean, if you disagree with it, you disagree with it. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, clearly, if you disagree with me, my assumption would be is that you're wrong and therefore I should pay into it. So, you know, we can just go that way. And, uh, and it's this. The, there is a lost art of people simply being willing to agree to disagree. Okay, we don't see eye to eye on those particular questions, but hey, let's go out and uh, I'll buy you a drink. Nonetheless, we, we can still have, um, you know, I, I've had fairly good friends of mine. So I don't think I ever agreed politically with them on one damn thing, but nevertheless, we were still friends. That was okay. But that, but, the, but there was this, this idea that there was this sort of, you know, there was some sort of political correctness that had some authority and if it has authority, but nobody really claimed, you know, you know, nobody was the sort of political correctness police. And, you know, people would always talk about it as some other thing, as some sort of mysterious force. And what I mostly see in that is just is just people doing a mind game on themselves. But you know the the idea, you know that you're being watched in some way that that what you're doing is is being judged. And and what I saw develop over a period of time is that that sort of half joking talk about political correctness became increasingly real. Until you've gotten to the situation now, where I think a lot of times. Uh, you know, particularly from the standpoint of any kind of instructor, uh, of really being careful about what you say, because someone among the students in the course or elsewhere will will have an issue with that. In other words, that they'll be offended by it. Now, you know, the whole yeah. thing is, yes. how do you ever have an honest dis discussion about anything? How do you really have a real discussion about anything without offending somebody? You know, I go on with the idea, if you haven't offended somebody, then, you know, you know it's, it's obviously this isn't, mm -hmm. this isn't terribly important. All right. Yeah, I, I completely, there's so much to break, you know, to unpack from what you just said. Uh, it, it got to the point where it wasn't even whether someone got, offended it's that someone could get offended and the ghost of that became this giant like shadow in the cave type situation where people are just so afraid of the notion that so oh someone could take this the wrong way even though nobody did take it the wrong way someone could take and we gotta eliminate that and for me because i see what you're talking about in hollywood right now and I've decided I'm not going to call it Los Angeles because I love L.A. It's Hollywood that I have a major problem with. The actual area of Hollywood and the people that are in it. And I've seen some wonderful comedians in Hollywood completely change the way they operate on stage and who they talk to because they don't want to get canceled. And canceling now 
is like this scarlet letter that's out there that if you get canceled, you find very quickly how many friends you have. Very quickly. And the notion of getting canceled is so scary that they would rather make themselves be miserable doing comedy they, they don't really enjoy than actually, possibly, which may never even happen, get canceled. And it happens all the time. So you, the question becomes, why? who is canceling? Who is the politically correct police? And for me, I don't know if you've followed uh, this thing with this hip-hop artist. He's called Kanye West. And there's all this stuff going on with him, the NBA, with Kyrie Irving, and all this stuff. And you start going, who who is canceling who? And the thing I got, it doesn't matter like what group is doing the canceling, because I think at the end of the day, when you take a look at the dark hand that is involved, to me it is always authority. And authority it wants to establish that if you do not toe the line, you will get canceled. And they use certain groups to cancel other people as a sign of authority. So when people go, cancel culture isn't real, they're right to a point. It's not real because most people don't care. But it's this very, very well-funded extremist group that is propped up by corporations and the government that make you think they have a bunch of teeth. And so when somebody says something stupid, let's say Kanye West, what happens is all the corporations drop him quickly to give the illusion that political correctness is something you don't want to mess with. When in reality, most people are like, dude, you, you shouldn't say those terms, but at the end of the day, what do you do really that bad? Well, I mean, Louis C.K. said it the best. He's like, am I really canceled? I do sold out shows. People buy my shit. Yeah. Like, is he really canceled? It's the illusion. Yeah, it's the illusion. We it's thought the illusion we all think he's it. canceled, but if you don't go to his show, you don't understand just because you don't see him on TV. You're like, oh, that guy got canceled. Go to his fucking I mean, shows. Go yeah, to but shows. he did lose something though. Well, he lost the 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 he lost the right to hang out with the inner group. And to, and, well, and, and what goes with that is making a you know a big budget television show on a network. I mean, that also he lost that, which is important. To him, but I don't know yeah. if it's still important to him. I think he's found happiness in what he's doing. But now he can do it on his website now. But it, he that's got, the he illusion. Something. He gained something. He's doing it now on his website. All right, guys, real quick, I want to tell you about our friends at True Classic. I love these shirts. These are my favorite shirts out there. They fit my bad angles really well. And the holidays are here, and there is plenty of T-shirt cheer, thanks to our sponsor, True Classic Tees. Fellas, we have the perfect gift for you. For your wish list, okay? True classic tees are a gift for you, for her, and a great present for any guy in your life, okay? True classic is on a mission to maximize men's confidence by making them look good. Trust me when I say that this is the gift that the ladies will appreciate too, okay? True classic has already helped 2 million men look great in their tees, and now you can say big while you do so, okay? Get 25% off true classic with my exclusive trueclassic.com slash tinfoil link, okay? And the discount doesn't stop there. You'll save even more during the site-wide sale, okay? Support our show and check them out at trueclassic.com slash tinfoil. I love it. 
I love wearing them, dude. You know I got bad angles. I got some chi-chis in the gut, and it looks really good on me. Their jackets are great. Their shirts are great. Look good while having bad angles in the t-shirts. You just have... You just look good. That's what it is. Uh, they got underwear. They got socks. They got you name it. Every color. They got pants. They got shorts. I love it. They're amazing, okay? And for my big fellas out there, they have long options for tall guys and up to triple XL. Big boys. Big get boys. some love. Big boys. If you're rocking a Santa bod, True Classic might be the Christmas miracle you've been waiting for, okay? So here's what I want to do. Get 25% off at trueclassic.com slash tinfoil. Free shipping included on a purchase over $100. That's 25% off trueclassic.com slash tinfoil. Santa won't be the only one slaying thanks to True Classic. I get what you mean there. Thank you, True Classic. <laughs> Social justice warriors to me are American ISIS. Well-funded extremists used to destabilize. And that's what they've been doing. And if you actually take a look, that's why I don't believe anything is going on in the news with these elections or any of that. Because the actual group that they're trying to convince us is winning everything is so tiny compared to the big group. That, but the small group is super well-funded by powerful people who position them in places to appear as though they're winning. And that, to me, is, uh, and maybe I'm wrong, and this is what I want to get into, is this, is this what we saw at the Bolshevik Revolution? Well, Bolshevik Revolution, so... Um... I guess maybe one of the places to start with that, you know, since that's my academic, start with an academic, is is what's what's we're talking about Bolshevism. What are we talking about? And and you know, one of the the common complaints I often have is that is that words seem to get separated from their reality in terms that they they tend to change and, and shift o over time. Um, uh, you know, the, the best example of that is the heavily overworked term fascism okay notice how one of the things particularly on the left it's fashionable to fashionable there you go yeah to accuse your enemies of being fascist this person's a fascist this is fascism fascism well you know almost nobody that who turns that term actually if you ask them to define fascism it's whatever it is that that day they dislike so, but, but, the, but the odd thing is there's an actual document you can go to. So the guy who came up with the whole name, okay, the guy who created fascism, I think it's fair to say, was Benito Mussolini, wasn't anybody else. Now, there may have been people who influenced him, but so on, but there was nothing called fascism before he formed the party in Italy. And one of the things that Mussolini wrote was a document called the Doctrine of Fascism. So here from the horse's mouth, from Mussolini, the guy who came up with the name, created the political movement, he defines what it is. And it, now, I kind of defy you to go through that and figure out exactly what it is, because it's kind of everything and nothing. But there is this, it's essentially a kind of glorification of the state. Um, the other thing it is, and this is what is often lost, is that fascism is a mutant form of Marxism. 
because one of the other little details, which is often lost about Benito Mussolini, is that for years before he became the leader of fascism, about the end, but the, you know, around 1918, 1919, is that what had he been for a good 20 years before that? He'd been one of the most active members of the Italian Socialist Party. Okay, so by background, his father was was also a, a socialist radical. Uh, well, sometimes he called himself an anarchist, but you know, he came from that kind of background. But from from his his family tradition, through his entire early political career, at one point he was the editor of the biggest socialist newspaper in Italy. Mussolini was a career Marxist, and what he did as a result of his experience in World War One and this kind of epiphany he had, was that he simply modified Marxism into fascism. So one of the basic inaccuracies, I think, inaccuracies, I think, which is often put forward in terms of popular culture is that fascism and Marxism are two extremely different things. You know, one's at the extreme right and one is at the extreme left. And no, they're, they're, they're both fruit from the same tree. Um, what Mussolini did is that he simply took fascism and amended it into a more national than international movement. And by the way, he's not the only one who did that because his imitator, Adolf Hitler and the Nazi party, what does Nazi stand for? What is it short for national socialists? So the other thing is that Nazis were also socialists. So, you see, these things are not as separate as they want to be. But you can also see why most people on the modern left don't want to acknowledge that background. Okay, This is not someone they want to acknowledge as part of their general generalized family tree. So what's Bolshevism? How does it fit into this? Uh, you know, how is Bolshevism, you know, what, what's, what, we've got these three terms. We've got these three isms. We've got socialism, and we've got communism, and we've got Bolshevism. And of course, let's throw in the other one, or the, the sort of beginning of it, Marxism. So Karl Marx, you know, he was a 19th century German economic philosopher um, who, you know, never actually worked in a factory a day in his life um, or at much of anything else other than compiling a lot of information and becoming an economic philosopher. And uh, his his product of that was um, the 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 idea essentially that history advances through phases of economic development. That, that you know, pretty much is that it, you know, I guess you could argue that Marxism was the first iteration of the idea. It's the economy, stupid. You know, that history was essentially an economic struggle uh, involving social classes. And so things went from some sort of primitive hunter-gathering society to a feudal society, then to what he believed existed at the time, which was a, a, a bourgeois society. That is a society in which the kind of property-owning middle class had become dominant. They, they displaced the old landowning aristocracy, and now it was the factory and bank-owning middle classes or productive classes that, that owned property. And, and you know, if you don't, I mean, it, is, it is based upon a simple reality. 
I mean, essentially what Marx was arguing is, you know, is that those who control the gold control the country, that you know, essentially political power is an extension of economic power, that those who have the control property and wealth in a society will tend to control its politics. And, you know, I don't see anything wrong with that. I, you know, I mean, I don't see anything wrong with his estimation that those two things go together. Uh, but Marx's idea was that what was then going to happen, though, is that inevitably, you know, that, that there was a, that history is going in a particular direction, that it that it that it's leading towards a a, a kind of singularity, that that that, that there is the, it's the whole concept that we have of progress. Remember that that things are changing and they're always becoming better. Rather, as opposed to the idea that things are just changing and they're not becoming better or for worse, they're just changing, and, and you know, progress is is what we is, is is a name sort of given to this. But but really, what that is is that it's just the idea of the millennium. So when Karl Marx said, "What's eventually going to happen is that this corrupt capitalist system, this system of exploitation." will eventually be transformed into a, uh, into a just, unified, communal society that will be a state of communism. And the way in which capitalism will be turned into communism is through the process of socialism. So one way to think of it is that Marxism is essentially the philosophy in Marxism, socialism is the means to the end, and communism is that end. It is the ideal state. Now, if you want to think about that in religious terms, what Marx is actually describing is this sort of, you know, that the advent of communism is the second coming. It, it, it is the end of times. It is the, reconcil the reconciliation of all of all contradictions and the creation of Christ's reign over earth, that, that type of thing. So that, that's what I mean by the fact that eventually Marxism, even though it repudiates, it argues that religion as it exists has no place in society, it can argue that because it's essentially proposing itself as the new religion. So here's my question. Here's my question. Uh, a lot of times I have friends of mine who I love to pieces, you know, and they, they call themselves socialists. And when you start talking about a lot of the stuff you bring up, um, they go, well, we've never had pure socialism. And I go, well, we've never had, very rarely, if ever, we've had pure of anything. There's always been a powerful uh, class that kind of controls where everything goes, right? There's like, uh, so it, it, I have to ask you, what, in your opinion, through everything you've learned, is, um, is the pure form of socialism that if if socialists got it, what that would look like. And then if communists got what they wanted, what would that pure form look like? And then finally, because you mentioned it earlier, you mentioned what is the actual definition of fascism? Because I know what I believe it is, uh, but I would love to hear what Mussolini, in your words, thought fascism was. Okay. Well, let's start with that. What With Mussolini's... Well, you'd have to read the whole doc. I mean, it's it's not the most coherent document. But what it comes down to is that fascism boils down to a 
a an idea of the organization of society uh, into around certain social castes. All right, it, remember, Mussolini started out as a Marxian socialist. Okay, and what Marxian socialists want to do is they believe that the world was going to be inherited by the proletariat, the working class. So, the present dominant class were the 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 property owning the, the capitalists. You know, those people who own the the means of production. You know, everything from banks to to factories, uh, and they exploited everybody else to do that. You know, the fact is is that you know you're. You, know, you think of it, you know, you, the work you do for your boss has to make your boss more money than he pays you, or he's a bad businessman, isn't he? Right. I mean, that's just right. the logic it's, it's going to work. So he is exploiting, he's getting more value from your labor than he pays back to you. So from another standpoint, he's kind of ripping you off. Now, the idea was that over time and through struggle and evolution that the proletariat is essentially going to rise up one way or the other and take control of society so that the the parasitic class the kind of managerial class will will disappear but that's one of those things that will take time so the, the pure form of socialism is communism remember that's that's the end you're supposed to achieve so even a, a communist party is a party which aspires towards communism, and the way you get there is through socialism. So socialism is inevitably a kind of evolutionary process. So there wouldn't be any perfect state of socialism except the final state, which was communism. Therefore, I'd argue communism is the perfect state of socialism, which yeah. I have to work through it to get there. So it's so let's go. You know, we're talking about how how fascism is essentially you know goes along with much this the same idea. So how did what's the, how does Mussolini sort of change fascism? Well, Marxian socialism argues that the entire working class in the world is all sort of one community. So remember the sort of phrase that was used by the Bolsheviks and others and other Marxists, which was, you know, workers of the world unite. You have nothing to lose but your chains. So Marxian socialism and communism, as, as its, its extension, viewed itself as an international movement whose goal ultimately was to liberate the entire toiling masses of the world from capitalist ownership and oppression. And therefore, in the Marxian sense, things like national identity became unimportant. And what was important was your social position. So the idea was that the workers in all countries, American workers, Russian workers, Latvian workers, Chilean workers, all workers were part of an oppressed, think of it this way, a victimized majority. And that's what they had, that's what they had to make, a, that's why they needed a common party and a common movement. And... What Mussolini argued is that what that did was that it created class conflict within the society. So even though he had been an active socialist for years, one of the things that he became critical of is that he believed that one of the things that this did in World War I 
and differences in views about that in Italy brought this up to him. It, it meant that working class Italians now viewed the, the upper classes as their enemies. And therefore, this led Italians to fight Italians. And he created class conflict in the fear of civil war. And he thought that that was bad for Italians. And instead, what Mussolini with fascism wanted to do was to create what, what the Germans, you know, what the Nazis called national socialism. That is, as opposed to an international movement that was going to uh, liberate workers and reconcile economic conflicts all around the world. You're going to do this within one country, and it was going to become a, but it needed, again, a party to act as a kind of controlling body which would reconcile differences. So what fascism did in Italy, or what it tried to do, was to create a system in which essentially you, you gave a stake in all of the social classes in a political system controlled by the fascist party, which stood above the classes, if that makes any particular sense. And it was, uh, so it was, it was to translate, it was essentially take socialist ideas and, and use them at a national level. But the other thing that Mussolini makes very clear that, you know, that makes this whole thing work is that you have to idealize the state. To a great extent, it was the, the worship of the state as a kind of semi-religious institution above social class and usually controlled by a particular party, by a particular ideology, and of course, an ideology led by a particular leader, which in this case was, was Mussolini. Um, there's also a lot of, in, 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 in fascism, and you can see this in, in Nazism, there's also a lot of kind of hankering for an idealized past. So one of the things that you could find is a difference between, let's say, a traditional Marxian socialist, you know, let's call it, between a communist, in a, doc, in a sort of simple sense, and a fascist, is that the fascists were generally much more inclined to sort of uh, either admire elements of the past. Uh, they were, in many ways, they were sort of great appropriators of tradition. So, for instance, in Mussolini's fascist Italy, you notice that he's constantly drawing these connections to the Roman Empire. He's talking about a new Roman Empire and, and creating a, a new sort of, you know, Roman martial spirit. In the in among the Italians, so there, there's all of this kind of symbolism that he, that evokes the Roman Empire, even though the Roman Empire had nothing to do with it. But you're you're sort of appropriating this this past for your uses. Whereas in in communism, there was you know much more of the idea was that the past was just you know it was it was just a dustbin. Uh, you know, the, the ultimate fate of anything that was out of date or politically incorrect under communism was to be swept into the, the dustbin of history. But the past was over with, and we were going to build a completely new future. You know, there was going to be a new Soviet man. There was going to be a, a new kind of murder. There was going to be a whole new world order that was going to create it. And therefore, the past didn't really matter that much. Now, practically speaking, that never really happened because the past is just too useful to completely ignore. Now, everybody likes to justify themselves by the past. 
But uh, that's you know the, um, the 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 rough difference between the two, and and a national socialism as opposed to an international socialism. You know, both of them being emphasized around how you with with, with social classes. Uh, you know, communism was simply going to destroy the bourgeoisie, you know, destroy them as a class, which you know, not necessarily you know, put them all against the wall and shoot them. Although you could do that. But to destroy them as a class by destroying their ability to own and manipulate property and money. You know, take their money away from them and they, they disappear. And Mussolini's, you know, the, the fascist solution to this was to create something that was above social class and which would unite people around a common national or tribal identity and get these different economic, you know, to essentially have some greater force in the state that would force the social classes to co cooperate with each other or really just force them to work together whether they wanted to or not. It's uh, interesting to me because there's a lot going on there because it sounds like when you listen to it, you go, okay, man, you know, the communist, the socialist, which leads the communist, wants to give the everyday man the opportunity that the ruling class has. You're like, well, that sounds great. That sounds great. Well, is that in a weird way what capitalism tries to do as well? But what seems to happen is you replace one ruling class with another ruling class, and that is the government. And the government becomes a bureaucracy. And then what we see in China is like you could build a business, and then the government comes in and goes, oh, your, your pizza shop is now an ice cream stand ran by my buddy over here. Get out. And that becomes it. And... And I would love to hear your opinion on this. I've also heard that fascism involves the state and corporations coming together to control people's rights, basically, that they work together and they, they dictate what is uh, acceptable and what is not acceptable. Am I, am I close on that at all? Well, let's put it this way. The, the idea is that you have this, again, if you're looking at fascism, is that you have the fascist party. So one of the things that, that the, the fascist party or the Nazi party afforded people is that it afforded, there was a, there was a writer who called it the, the concept of non-economic satisfaction. So that party membership afforded people non-economic satisfaction. So what are they talking about? Well, it gave them an ego boost. So one of the things that the mass party could do is that, you know, not everybody could be in the party. You required status. That's, see, if you don't, if you don't give people money, here's the trick. Give them status or perceive status. You know, don't give them any, don't give them a raise, just apparently, which is another way of just saying, you know, pat them on the head and give them an ego stroke. <laughs> that's, that's the way you can get, get people. By the way, that's, that's also a very key point in academia. <laughs> don't give them a lot of money. Make everything about prestige and status. Damn, that's that's right. Hollywood right that now. Is. I mean, look that is what way. Hollywood yeah. is right now. Go get a Starbucks oh, for so and so. Hey, dude, here. Hey, congrats on your show on Netflix. Oh, by the way, good luck paying your rent. That's the whole Viacom 
way of operating, which is so interesting, man. So what, what I find very interesting about fascism is that that term has been kind of used by the left to point to anybody on the right. And I find that interesting because based on what you're telling me, okay, the the real term that should be being pointed at people is communist or socialist because that seems to be a lot more dangerous than than what fascism is and because they the end goal of this this movement of of corporations and the government seems to be putting the government, which will be ran by the corporations, in charge. So you can't demonize communism. So you have to find another term, and that term is fascist. Guys, I want to tell you about our good friends at Beard Club. That's right, Beard Club for the man with the nice beard. Let me tell you about Beard Club. Having a great looking beard requires work, whether it is a beard growth oils, stylish products, or a top of the line trimmer. There's a small army of products required to grow your best beard. Luckily, Beard Club is here to help. As a leader in the beard first men's growth and grooming, Beard Club delivers quality hardware and consumables that help you get a better, thicker, and fuller beard, okay? Listen, guys, I loved it. I went and got the package. I got the ultimate, right? I love the ultimate package. It's got that razor that is pinpoint. There it is, the ultimate one. Dude, it is, I mean, that razor charges real quick and works really well. I know Johnny had a couple things he liked as well. Yeah, I mean the razor was the thing that I love the most. It's I, it's got three adjustments just built into it. Feels like a damn solid product, you know, just to hold it in your hand. And it comes with this cool stand. It's got like a night light built into it. It's really it's insane. And it's they beautiful. got great stuff to help like just keep your beard looking shiny. Yeah, they've got beard shampoo, which they got you know, to grow like kind vitamins, of long. vitamins to grow your beard. Vitamins you want for your, your beard, beard. To look like Sam's. Yeah, you want one like this. Then get yourself the if you're if you're if your facial hair gets itchy too and it gets long, they have this great uh great shampoo that helps a lot with that. They get it, okay? So head to beardclub.com slash tinfoil, take a beard quiz, and use the code tinfoil at checkout. They'll recommend the best beard kit that tailored to fit your needs, okay? No matter what type of beard you have, Beard Club has the perfect kit to fit your needs. Beard Club, over woo, 2 million beards served. That's I didn't even know there was that many beards. I didn't even know there was that many beards. Grow your best beard today and take 20% off your first order when you go to beardclub.com slash tinfoil and use the code tinfoil. That's beard.com slash tinfoil, code tinfoil for 20% off your first beard. Fascism has just become an insult. Right, okay? right, it's, right. It's, it's just thrown around as, you know, what do you call a pejorative, but just an insult is thrown at people, and it's generally used without adding any idea of, of what the hell you're talking about. All yeah. Right, so, I mean, I've seen all kinds of people, I mean, like it or not, I've seen people constantly being accused of being fascist, and they may be a lot of things, but they're probably not a fascist. And you know, you using that term, you don't have any idea what what what, what a fascist <laughs> is. And furthermore, you've never made any effort to find out what one is. You just repeat this term, and this is you know, this is just one of the things I have to admit that just bugs me about people in general, including myself sometimes. It's just, you know, people latch onto these terms and they just repeat them like parrots. 
all right? And, and by the way, a, a term which is it's used in very similar ways, I think, is racist because it is often used. I mean, I mean, anti-Semitic person, now is a big one. Calling, I mean, dude, yeah, I mean, I mean uh, at one one day on Twitter, we will all be called anti-Semitic yeah. at the, at this rate for whatever. I like I like mushrooms on my pizza. You fucking anti-Semitic. They call right. Jordan Peterson a Nazi. Come or, on, I mean, like, yeah. Well, and here's an interesting thing. You brought up the term anti-Semitic, and you know, a course of anti-Semitism. That word. All right, what are we what are we talking about when we use the term anti-Semitic? Because it's not really. I mean, what that would technically mean. Semitic is a broad group of people that it, that does include Jews, but it also, even more prominent, includes what Arabs. Okay, it describes a linguistic family. That's what it describes. So, in a sense, if you wanted to be nitpicky about it, you could argue that, uh, you know, anti-Semitic would be someone who just doesn't like Semites, which means that mostly they wouldn't like Arabs because there would be a lot more of them, and they don't like Jews, and they don't like them because they're Semites. And that, I'd argue, is probably someone who has never actually existed, and that's not what we're talking about, because the term anti-Semitic means one thing and one thing only, which is anti-Jew. And my question is, why don't we just say that? <laughs> so what is a Semitic? It's an Arab? Well, it's a person of a certain area? Semitic is a term used mostly, you know, it's used historically or anthropologically to define a group of people, mostly who live in what we call the Middle East, which remember isn't really the middle or east of anything, but anyway, what we call the Middle East, who speak <laughs> related languages. So Hebrew and Arabic are related. They are Semitic languages in the same way that English and German basically are Germanic languages, or that you know, or that 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 Spanish and Italian are are Romance or Latin-based languages. So there, there is a linguistic link between, and so the, the main Semitic people in the world are Arabs. Arabs are Semites. There are other smaller groups, you know, Maltese, the island of Malta is, you know, has, a, has a Semitic language, but it's mostly defining people by language. And Jews are Semites, in, in the sense that they descend from, well, if you're, if you're Hebrew-speaking, you're speaking a Semitic language. Um, you know, because of the historical roots to that area, but it, it sort of goes back to, I mean, where does that term here? See, this is the type of thing that, that, that people should do. Where does, that, where, where does that term come from? I mean, who came up with the term anti-Semitic? Well, turns out it was a guy named Wilhelm Marr in Germany, around the middle of the 19th century, I think 1860s, 1870s. And Wilhelm Marr was mostly a journalist, uh, and, and he also didn't like Jews, okay? Um, he was, and there was, a, there was a common term which was used at the, at the time to describe a, 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 a strong opposition to Jews, which was, I think, Yunhas, which was essentially Jew hate, you know? But, and Marr, you know, uh, being a man of some education, thought that, um, you know, Jew hate just has, well, that just sounds kind of ugly, doesn't it? I mean, who wants to be connected with something called Jew hate? And this was now the 19th century and, um, you know, the, the time of, of science. And, and, you know, one of the things is always connecting this term ism, 
to things. You know, we've talked about all of them. Socialism, communism, Nazism. There's always an ism. So what's an ism? It simply means that there's some sort of organized belief. An ism has to be some sort of organized belief. I don't know how organized, but sort of organized. So first of all, it, it, it elevates whatever you're talking about to being a system of belief. So, I mean, even if you hate fascism, by simply by calling it fascism, you're acknowledging that it's a thing. Apparently, it's a system because it's an ism. So what Marr did is that he replaced, you know, the ugly sort of negative sounding Jew hate with, well, how, how, can, how can I say that I hate Jews without actually saying Jews? <laughs> so I know they're Semites, right? You know, we, we, we categorize, them, categorize them as Semites. And, you know, in Europe, they're the only Semites around. There'd be no particular number of Arabs at that time. And we'll just call it anti-Semitism. Anti-Semitismus was the, was the German form of it. So this is now. So what, what's interesting about this to me is that anti-Semitism was a term developed by a Jew hater to make Jew hate sound better. And everybody bought it. And you're still using it. <laughs> Jews so, are using it. Yeah, Jews are using it. This this became the whole thing. And I mean, we all know who we're talking. I mean, I mean, I, it, it, so it, it simply, it, you know, it becomes the term which was established. And, and then, of course, academics picked it up and it became established in writing. And we're always saying anti-Semitic, 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 when all the time we're actually saying anti-Jew, anti-Jew, anti-Jew. And it would probably be more powerful if they did say anti-Jew. Anti-Semitic, now everybody's fighting over the Semitics of that, right? Like, uh, you, you know, you know anti-Semitic is, I mean, first of all, it's you really are sort of buying into a an anti-Semite, you know. The, the guy wasn't developed to really clarify things. It's really just, it, it really gives it a greater dignity than it would have otherwise. Because I think if you combine the two terms, you know, essentially Jew hate and anti-Semitism, well, which sounds like it might actually have a certain amount of amount of credibility to it. Uh, I think it's just a matter of habit. I think it also because when you basically say anti-Jew, it somehow makes it that much clearer. I mean, it, it confronts you with a kind of ugly face of something that that even for some reason those who are opposed to anti-Semitism don't want to deal with. And, weird. you know, it was, it was one of those things I, you know, I often, I mean, I, I mean, I, I've stuck with the term myself when I, when I had a class, uh, it was a history of, of, of anti-Semitism. It wasn't the history of anti-Jewism because partly nobody would know exactly what I was, what I was talking about. But, but I think it's a way in which words and names take on very different meanings in, in terms of, you know, anti-Semitism, on one level, we all know what it means, but we just can't bring ourselves to say it. And I think that itself is a kind of the, you know, what you were talking about before in, in, with political correctness, the kind of self-censoring that happens with that. The, the, the way in which you find that you begin not, you know, of using euphemisms to describe things instead of doing it openly, uh, you know, part of it is simply to fit in and to and to avoid criticism. You know, most of us you know, don't like that, but you know, again, I, 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 I would argue that in in a truly free exchange of ideas, people are going to disagree. Sometimes, you know, 
They might disagree a little bit. They might get get into a, a violent argument. But that's the only way that anything ever develops. Uh, and on the other hand, you have this constant desire by people to fit in, to not rock the boat, you know, to not get canceled, which just means that what? Some people will be mad at you. Yeah. yeah. Twitter not gets deleted. Well, it's it's super interesting because it's like, you know, so we got, you know, all this, everybody, everybody getting called anti-Semitic. And it, it drives me kind of crazy because what it's used is as a, it's a used as a shield against the criticism of anybody who happens to be Jewish. And my whole pushback is like every group's got some bad apples. We should judge each person on their own and not make whatever they're doing, uh, you know, take their group and have them be charged with the same crime. It's to me, it's just ridiculous. And it's kind of used as a way of going. And you see this a lot with the elites do this where they'll pull some shit. Doesn't matter what group it is. They'll pull some shit and then they'll get the entire base of that group to defend their actions. And then we get into these race wars or these gender wars or these, you know, whatever war it might be. And it just happens all the time. My whole thing is like, and I've said this forever, is like judge somebody on an individual basis. But you see that people that that the powers that be that control the information don't want that. Because what they really want is us all fighting with each other. So we can't really focus on what the power is and all that stuff. And maybe it's human nature because we're mammals. We run in packs and we defend our pack against an attack from another pack. I don't know what it is. But, you know, it's like if I could talk to Kanye, who's who's talk about Jew media and all that stuff. I go, do you think all Jews are in on it? And I guarantee you. He says yes. He thinks they're all in on he's it. He's been asked this. He's like, "You're well, are you? What Jews are you talking about? Are you talking about all of them?" And he'll be like, "Yeah, all of them." He's like, "No, no, no, no. Wait up, wait up. You're talking about like a specific one in the music industry." And then that's Lex talking, and then kind of be like, "Nope, all of them." Yeah. Well, he's lost at that. Yeah. I that's, mean, that's when it's like, dude, you, there's no helping this guy out when yeah. he won't give out a name or say, "No, yeah. this guy from this." Yeah. Or you condemn an entire group of people based on the actions of a few, and no matter how many you are, if you say me tell me that there's a thousand Jews in the media, right? That's still just a drop in the bucket compared to how many in the world. So it just gets to me like this way to just create division. And And by the way, everybody, I kept that whole energy for when it was very cool in the year 2019 to say white people are all racist and white supremacy and white privilege. I kept the same thing, that same energy. I hate generalizations. And I just think that's where you get into it. So you, the, the, the term anti-Semitic is used anytime there's a criticism on a very large level of anyone who happens to be Jewish, even though you're not criticizing his Judaism. You're just criticizing an action he took. And he just happens to be Jewish. That's LGBTQ now too. Yeah, well, you can't, you can't, you can't you say can't nothing about. Line. Yeah, you can't give up an inch because you give up an inch, then you allow criticism of everything, and that's that's dangerous to people in power. Thoughts, Richard? Well, one of the things that you've always got is uh, any place, anytime, anywhere. I'd argue. 
there are always, you, know, you can call them the elites, you can call them the controlling, I, I just call them the masters. All right, there's always some sort of class of masters. And you never have to look around too hard to find out who that those are, and, and you can tell them by the amount of stuff that they generally possess. They own things, they own everything in this case. And it is, um, you know, I, I don't think you have to look very hard in what could be termed the the master class internationally. That one of the things that you can look, you can find all kinds of people, and you can find Jews, but well, and managed to advance into the into the master class. And but yeah, you're right about it. But where all of this tends to go wrong, or I think really people tend to. You know, I'm pontificating here, but I'll do that. You really tend to go off the rails is anytime you start thinking about people in groups, anytime you start thinking about them, any anytime some you lose sight of any kind of individuals, and that's where the then that just leads to chaos and murder. It does it inevitably. Because what it does is it depersonalizes people in mass. You know, and you can look around in terms of, we're, we're always told all sorts of things about, well, you know, times the way which, you know, white people are, you know, the characteristics of the white people, typical characteristics of black people, typical characteristics of Jews, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, all of those are derived from observation of some people within those groups, but then they become this, well, you know, hated term of, of stereotypes that, that, that is then used, but it's, but it also just takes careful observation to realize how little that tends to apply to most individuals. Yes. Yeah. You actually meet some of them and they, they don't act the way that them do. And actually nobody does pretty much except for a few particular individuals. And it's, you know, the thing to the, if, for lack of a better term, the evil comes into that when you begin thinking about people and when you persist in thinking about people in groups in which they do things, because that arguably is how you end up like that like Kanye has gotten himself into, which is which is a form of it, it's a form of delusion because the real world isn't like that. But it, I mean that's that's common with with so many things. I mean that that's a kind of it's, it's we're, we're constantly we've always been told ever since we were very small is how the world was supposed to be you know how things you know at some point that may well have included a mysterious man who came down chimneys or somehow got into your house over christmas and left presents you know one of those little lies that the children took but we're always told how the world is supposed to work and then gradually we sort of figure out that it doesn't work that way at all <laughs> and, and and that most of this stuff you're being told, well, I, I'll boil it down even simpler. Most of the stuff that, that we've been told by authorities of all kind, religious, political, and academic, is bullshit. That's the way I would categorize it. It's just fundamentally not true or not true in the way into which it is, in which it is applied. And that we simply go through, you know, and, and, I think, you know, part of the whole process, if you try to learn anything, is trying to little by little disabuse yourself of most of the bullshit. 
I, I agree with you on that. And, and one thing, you know, you have some notes you sent me, and you know, I keep bringing it back to the, you know, the Russian Revolution. And there's something in here that says, why would capitalists have backed revolutionary socialism? And for me, man, you know, it's like people have been talking about. It. You see Rogan talking about all the time this, whether it's trans agenda. Uh, whatever, uh, you know, political correctness and all that stuff. You're like, where does this come from? Is it, is it naturally occurring or is it something that is what there's a term for called astroturfing, which is where you present something as a naturally occurring movement in reality is it's completely contrived by certain groups to create uh, uh, the, the illusion of a movement, right? So, so when I when I saw your notes about why would capitalists have backed a revolutionary so revolutionary socialism, and I go, I think that's exactly what's happening today in this country. You have something called ESG, environmental social governance, being pushed by a firm called BlackRock and also Vanguard, plus a couple other ones. And they are giving credit to companies who use, uh, who do certain th social, uh, environmental, uh, and economic uh, things that earn credit, earn credit with them. A great example now is, I don't know if you guys know this, but the U.S. soccer team oh, is fuck. going yeah, to I Qatar and without debate or a vote they are wearing a rainbow logo it's disrespectful to the flag nobody talked about it but why is it happening why is it just being just why is it go ahead because whoever made those logos whoever is running that show is trying to curry favor with these people in the esg and the BlackRock. So my question to you is, Richard, is that similar to things that we saw start to happen in Russia during this revolution? Well, go back to the simpler question. Why would, let's say, a uh, capitalist support socialist revolutionaries in, in other circumstances? That is, why would you support someone espousing a doctrine that argues for your extinction one way or the other? Well, there's a very simple answer to that, and it's, it's in some ways it's just it's pretty obvious. Uh, a capitalist will do that if they're worthy of the name for the same reason they do anything because there's money in it because they found the way in which they can profit from that kind of situation. So, uh, how could you profit? I mean, here's the, here's the situation which I, I'd say I mentioned that one of my books. Uh, is is Wall Street and the Russian Revolution. So that deals directly with that question. And what I'm looking at there is that I'm not even looking at, uh, you know, sort of German or, or, or British or other sort of capitalists who are also interested in, in Russian political factors, but I'm, I'm largely focusing on on figures on the American financial front, um, you know, people like William Boyce Thompson. I mean, and here's the prime example, Henry Ford. Okay. Now, there's an American capitalist that, that most people have heard of. 
you know, and Henry Ford was by no stretch of the imagination uh, a Marxist sympathizer. He had no interest in that. What Henry Ford had a tremendous amount of interest in doing was in increasing the efficiency of production and everything else for in order for making more money. So one of the things that you find is that from the get-go, basically from the time in which the Bolsheviks, a a, com- a movement which aspired towards a, a towards through socialism achieving communism um once they once they came into power ford was one of the first american corporations who lined up to do business with them he never had a problem doing business with them didn't have a problem doing business with lenin now let's, let's also remember something else about henry ford what else was henry ford he was a he was a uh, business genius uh, he was the sort of father of in many ways the modern american auto business but he was also an anti-semite he, he he was uh, oh. went went on the whole international Jew kick for years. You know, bought an entire newspaper to essentially promulgate these ideas. So you know, Henry Ford and Kanye West would would have had a lot of talk about it. You know, <laughs> bring them together. So you Richard, real quick, who, real you, quick, Richard, let me ask you yeah. something. Why do you think so many people hate the Jews? Do you think it's because of their success and then? running into them into business what what is it that what just happened there okay are you still there richard yeah i'm still here okay what do you think it is is there any historical uh evidence of what what causes that well you know that that's it's a very interesting question. It would take a long time to, to really explain fully. But if I was to give a simple one of you, you, what you had is that for centuries, Jews had lived in Europe, which is mostly what we're focused on. And um, as, as a semi-despised religious minority, why? So we just keep in mind from Germany to Poland to France or elsewhere, Jews had lived there. They're they're a very they're a fairly small group of the population. They generally tended to be isolated by their own laws and practices and, and by the laws within the country. Uh, they don't assume any particular importance. I mean, if you go back to the 15th and 16th centuries, you don't find Jews in any real they have no power. They, they are a kind of barely tolerated social group and in in a, in a much less you know diverse Europe at the time pretty much you just had the different populations and and Jews were one of the few significant foreign elements that sort of lived w- within these countries so there was a long history of them being mistrusted and despised right and that but then in the 19th century, when you got into the era of business, you know, and in which your ancestry and land ownership didn't matter so much, but, you know, your chutzpah did in terms of getting ahead, then one of the things you tend to define is that in the 19th century, social restrictions on Jews were removed. It's a period called Jewish emancipation, and it meant that they were essentially granted full citizenship almost in, in almost all countries. Uh, Russia was very behind the times on that, but elsewhere, by the, the late 19th century, Jews had the same rights as anybody else, which might not have been that many rights, but they they tended they, they were some they were sort of mainstreamed into the culture. 
And one of the things that in that many people, um, Jews, rose in the professions. So you tended to find them heavily represented in things like legal professions, even in the medical professions, the, the, the more sort of modern professions in which there were less sort of old restrictions to go into. So a lot of things changed in, in the 19th century. So, I mean, one way to think about it is that in 1800, you know, sort of in Napoleon's time, the only way still that you, you lit the night was with fire. That was it. I mean, it was either a fire in a lantern or elsewhere, but that was the only thing that you could use to make darkness go away, which, which, is, which is a really sort of surprising thing from our current state of, <laughs> of, of illumination. Uh, it's, it's like, you know, I've often described that living in the past was like camping all the time. Yeah, 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 yeah. So you go from this period where you only could light the night with fire to then in 1900, imagine you now have electricity. All right. You, you have the ability to simply create permanent states, you know, illuminate buildings all the time. You, you have, you know, if you're going to travel in 1800, how do you get anywhere? A horse or a ship that was powered by the wind. And by 1900, you have, you know, huge ships powered by coal and by wow. iron and diesel. You know, in 1903, the first airplane is going to take place. So there's this a huge amount that happens in that period. And that goes along with the development of industry and mass production, all of this stuff. And that was like any other change. It was good for some people and it was bad for others. So one of the groups of people that the modern era was very, very bad for were skilled craftsmen and artisans because mass production machines, those were the first people basically put out of business. Okay. All of this sort of, you know, and, and then they had to find jobs, you know, then they would just go to work as, you know, a laborer in, in some dark satanic mill somewhere instead of being a craftsman. So not everybody prospered. In it. I mean, that never happens. Any kind of change, you know, the whole thing, it's, it's Darwinian, I guess. There are going to be winners and there are going to be losers. So there were a lot of people uh, in the lower middle class, among craftsmen, uh, you know, farmers were perennially unhappy. And so you look around you in your situation and you look around and you see that some people are getting better and you're not. And one of the things that you might notice in particular that some of the people are getting better is that some of those people were Jews. And, hey, I remember 20 years ago where, you know, they had to live behind a wall at the other end of town. And now suddenly, you know, one of them is my boss or I'm, I'm going to borrow money from them in a bank mm -hmm. and this just seems like the world turned upside down mm. so one of the things that happened is that the emancipation of jews and the success of some most remained as poor as anybody else and the prominence of some the prominence of these former sort of marginalized people seemed to be symptomatic of everything that was wrong I mean, if you thought the world was just turning shitty all of a sudden, then this somehow seemed to be connected to these Jews that previously had nothing in, in being successful. So how do these people end up being more important or more powerful than I was? So it was, you know, it was a combination of the older religious prejudices now combined with these, these kind of social and, and, and economic discontent and, and, the, and the focus for it. 
but it was, I mean, and did, you know, and, and you know, the poster children for, you know, Jewish success were the Rothschild family. Uh, okay. And, and the Rothschild, the Rothschilds were everything that people says about the Rothschilds. They were a tremendously powerful, wealthy, and influential Jewish banking family. Okay. Yep. The question is, what does that have to do with millions of other Jews, you know, somebody who's a woodcutter in Poland? Absolutely nothing. I agree with all this. I think that what we do is we like to make generalizations. And, you, you know, I, 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 you really shed a light on the fact that, you know, you go from a, a, a class that isn't allowed to participate, figuring out how to survive, so you kind of like you kind of huddle up together and now suddenly you have this opportunity where you're allowed access to everything that you weren't before, but you still have that mentality of huddling up together. Most groups do this. And it's just, we get, you know, the, the, you always hear Brian Callen talk about the Dagestanis and why they're so great at MMA because they do two things in their life. They worship Allah and they train fighting. That's all they do. So you're going up, if you're fighting a Dagestani and you got a girlfriend and you're on social media, you're now diverting some of your time to something else. Mexicans do that. They do construction and lawnmower. Should we just pick something else to stick to? Well, it, it just begins, what is your niche? That's you, what I'm saying. We have so, a bad niche. So if you look at the Latins. It used to be boxing. You, if you look at the people. Latins, they did find all this labor is a is a industry that they could flourish in. And now you got you got Mexicans coming up going, hey, man, I'll do your lawn for $1,500. Yeah, they, they got right? the union. They, they got it all. They take it over. Yeah. That's just kind of what happens. And that's what gets really. So if you even look at like anti-Latino rhetoric, it's because these guys are finding a market to flourish in. And people are like, hey, man, those used to be American jobs. You're they like, took our jobs. Yeah. And like, it's the exact same thing. It's the exact same thing. Now, here's my opinion on the Rothschilds. Based on everything I know about Bill Gates, about Jeff Bezos, about uh, um, Elon Musk, and even this kid, SBF, that has this giant um, uh, uh, this crypto thing crashing, right? Sam something, Friedman or Bankman something. Friedman Friedman. Yeah. Ba the story's never what you think it is. Okay? So, so who is who is Mayor Rothschild's? The guy who kicks it all off. Who is his parent? Who does he write? Like, we never talk about who was that guy's dad or that guy. So that to me, there's always a backstory. But that is 100% it. It is, it is that a group works together. So if you take a look at Hollywood, right? Hollywood was kind of outlaw at one point, And there became a market to thrive in. And people found that market and worked into that market. And uh, to be on like uh, not to be like on on the true side, but like why would I not have my my cousin or my uncle or my nephew work under my business well, the for only problem CNN with that, or whatever? Like the it only just problem it stays with that, in the family. Why would I The only problem with that, sorry to cut you off, but XG is that there is this narrative right now that white people only take care of white people. And then you and that's where you get the conflict from. Is that okay? White people take care of white people, but then you like yeah. so. So you'll see a meme. It'll be like all these people are Jewish, and then there's like ah, see the Jews run this. It's like well, I don't really think that the, just because they are all Jewish doesn't mean that that group of people runs it. It just means a certain academic group got in there. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So.
which I'm sure they're going to get cut up and I'm going to get annihilated on the internet for saying that. But I just think when we, when a group has success, an outside group really hates that. And then you start judging everybody instead of judging individuals. Now there's now sitting there going, there are, there's no Jews out there. It goes back to Dave Chappelle's joke, right? That, you know, it's like when it, when it's blacks, it's a gang, when it's Italians, it's a mob, when it's Jews, it's a coincidence, right? That's his joke, <laughs> right? And the reality is, is like, there, there are Jews who are up to some shady shit. Are they doing it because they're Jewish? I don't think so. They're doing it because they're shady and they have to be Jewish. That's my, that's where I come from. So that's, that's where that, I want to get into, as we wrap it up here, all these people like Lenin, um, Stalin, how do you pronounce it? Trotsky or what? Trotsky. Trotsky. Sorry. Sorry about that. I'm an idiot. Uh, what roles did they have in all this? What, who are they? What are the roles that they have in this revolution? And can we see anybody like that here today in America? Okay, so if you talk about the Russian Revolution, the, you know the names that come up Soviet history are Lenin, Trotsky, and Stalin. Those are those are the kind of triumvirate. So let's start with the guy who maybe is the most important because I, I think his his history illustrates a number of things, and that's that's Vladimir Lenin. Because you know Lenin is the founder of the Soviet state. He's he's the founder of the of the Bolshevik party. He is Mr. Bolshevik. There would be no Bolsheviks without him. So who was he? Uh, well, you know, one of the things you so often find with people uh, is that you know his real name wasn't Lenin. That was a revolutionary sort of pseudonym. Oh, he took you know that and his real name was Ulyanov. Okay, so his name was Vladimir Ilyich Ulyanov, and. What he was is that he actually came from, did he come from an impoverished family of peasants or a, a, a family of poor workers? No, he, he came from a relatively, he came from the background that if you look closely, you will find a lot of history's revolutionaries come from, which is essentially the sort of affluent upper middle class or even the upper class. Now, in Lenin's case, not only was his father a fairly well-off government official, he was, he was kind of a district school inspector. Think of it. Yeah, nothing terribly important. But what made the Ulyanovs important was that they were they were part of the hereditary nobility. Uh, and now that they, his Lenin's father entered the family into that because of his service to the Tsar estate. So one of the things that you could do this is kind of interesting in, in Tsarist Russia is that you could you could through governmental service, military or civil service, you know, like being a school official, you could eventually, if you reached a high enough rank, uh, you could enter yourself. You, your family could be established in the nobility, which did give you certain you know noble privileges. So they weren't exactly ancient nobility, but Lenin was born a hereditary nobleman. Uh, that they kind of sink in. So in other words, the man who was later to become the founder of modern communism was born into the hereditary nobility of Russia. Now, one of the reasons why I think that's important is because it's a way of you know, Lenin's growing up in the late 19th century, and while nobles were only a small portion of the Russian population, the point is, is there actually were quite a few of them. And the other thing that, that was changing in this period was, well, notice the job that Lenin's dad had, district school inspector, again, you know, 
not something terribly important. And that was it. Being a noble didn't count for much anymore. You know, you know, it didn't mean that much. So one of the things you'll tend to find among elites, you know, people who are born into privilege or an elite status like that and will generally try to maintain it. And what sometimes will happen is that elites will try to sort of reimagine themselves. And it's one of the reasons why a revolutionary movement would attract people like Lenin or others. And by the way, he wasn't rare. He wasn't the only hereditary nobleman among the Bolsheviks. That is Antifa, everybody. That is Antifa. All these people are rich kids railing against a system that their fathers and grandfathers established. Now, that is Hollywood. That is this this is exactly what you heard the uh, 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 Malcolm X talk about. This is exactly what you heard the Unabomber talk about. This is exactly what it is. White liberals of affluent are dangerous. This is exactly. That's I, at the top, though, right? I mean, because they, they did mobilize an entire groundswell of, like, commoners. Yeah, but the That's guy who kicks it off. Yeah. Well, I'm saying at the top, it is elites, right? But eventually, I, I, I think you're saying that most of the Antifa you'll find today, and I agree, are privileged people. But with the, with the with the Russian Revolution, I mean, we're talking about well because they didn't have the internet and all that stuff, and you were just hearing like the newspaper. I mean, it gets super deep. But this is this is the same game plan gets played over and over and over and over and over again. And it just like let's take these kids right. They're throwing soup on these paintings. Just- They're all rich kids, and the person funding it to stop the oil. The oil is a oil baron. She makes money in oil. I guess I, I, I what I'm trying to say is I feel like we're doing them also, uh, almost a, a favor comparing them to the Russian Revolution because I feel like this is just so comparatively small. It's just I it, disagree. It's, it's, I disagree. You, you don't think there aren't? I don't feel like a lot of people are engaged in this shit at all. I, I, well, I think right I, I now think it's, it's like a different phase. But DeBron, J, I mean Johnny, take a look at what was going on in like 2019. They were burning outside our. Well, our you're the studio. one. That, you're the one that's normally telling me how small those uh, those events were. Well, I m- the point is that I'm trying to make is like no, there were the, the actual group of people. I think right. it's a small group of people. Well, I mean, maybe elites. Thoughts, Richard? Am I off? It, it, it's an interesting question. I mean, he's brought up an interesting question. Was the Re- Russian Revolution the expression of a mass movement? So it's like another one of those questions. Uh, I think he asked was you know was it was it one of those things that just was accidental. Or was, you know, was, was it part of some sort of his inevitable historical, you know, was, was the revolution inevitable? And that's interesting because if you look at the revolutionary parties, so, I mean, let's look at things in terms of numbers. So the, the, the Tsar's empire around 1910, you know, in the, in the era, the years leading up to the revolution, there were probably 170 million people. Doesn't sound like that much today, but that was one of the biggest countries in the world at the time. So there was about 170 million people. So uh, and and a large number of those people were were impoverished. Uh, you know, 80 percent of the population are still basically subsistence dirt farmers for the most part of it. Uh, you know, and th- that that itself wasn't too. Well. So there, there was a lot of economic discontent. Um, 
There was, was, was a lot of political discontent. Now, what you have to do is you, you look at a population which is about 80% peasant. And, uh, you know, in many ways, often, you know, fairly uneducated, you know, a lot of, a lot of ignorant peasants mm-hmm. within the country. And then you, you had a working class that worked under fairly, you know, fairly bad conditions, even, even by the time. Uh, you have a kind of small middle class, you know, by the, by the middle class, I'm talking about the people who are essentially involved in trade or commerce or manufacturing or the professions. Yeah. So the middle class includes things like doctors and lawyers and bank presidents, um, but, and, but it also includes business, you know, people who would operate businesses or people who are involved in trade and manufacturing. And, and then, but it was really determined by not how much money you had, but by what it was that you did. Wow. And yeah. and then you had you had a nobility, which was above that. And the nobility was, you know, they could own, they could do all of the other things anybody else could do. But their background was basically owning land, and also, of course, having having being a noble. So there was a lot of there was a huge amount of of social and and economic unrest. So there there was you know there were a lot of pissed off people. Just like in the U.S. today, let's face it, there are a lot of pissed off people. And if you look around in most societies at any given point in time, you don't have to look very hard to find a fair number of pissed off people. There's always some sort of groups that, that tend to feel disenfranchised. So there was a movement, a revolutionary movement that developed mostly where in Russian universities, because you know, it, was, it was considered there that universities were simply the schools for revolutionaries, because while most people who went there didn't become revolutionaries, virtually all people who did gravitate to revolutionary parties at some point went to college where they got radicalized and then yeah. kicked out of college and then, and then went into this. But if you look at the membership of the radical party. So let's think about it. We got, we got an empire of 170 million people. So in 1910, how many people uh, out of that empire, 170 million people, remember were were part of Marxist revolutionary parties, of, of which the Bolsheviks were only one faction, keep in mind. But if we lumped all the Marxists together, how many people were actively involved in Marxist activities? Maybe Maybe a quarter of a million maybe 250,000, and that's at the outside, out of 170 million. Yeah. And then if you looked at the others, how many were involved in anarchist activities? I mean, the Bolsheviks were not even a particularly large party. You know, if you put it all together, you probably had among active revolutionaries and their sympathizers, you might have had one to two million people overall. And I, I'm talking about people who are sort of active revolutionaries involved in, you know, conspiratorial cells to people who are just, you know, we kind of help them out, you know, maybe too many, again, out of 170 million. So here's one of the things to keep in mind about, about how history is run. And, and there's this idea that history is, is, is in some way influenced by what the mass of people believe or do, almost never is. History is run by active minorities. If you look Whoa. at any kind of, yeah. if you look oh, at man. any political system, you always find that what is in control of it is a fairly small, close knit minority of some kind. They may be unified around a religious idea. Man. They may be re- unified around a political idea. 
But what you basically had in Russia in this period is that the active revolutionary movement consisted probably, again, of several hundred thousand to maybe a couple of a million people. Although the active members of those were fairly small. Now, that's not a tiny movement, but it's not really a mass movement. And it's not like these parties ever went out and actively tried to organize every, every, everybody into this. Uh, they were all very clearly controlled. So what, what Lenin did, Lenin started out as a member of what was called the Social Democratic Party. And the Social Democratic Party was the Marxist Party. They were Marxian socialists. And by the way, I guess that raises the question, are there non-Marxian socialists? <laughs> yeah, but not much anymore. Okay, but at one time there, there was. But Marxism sort of took over that, that whole sort of term. So the Marxists, of course, were, were, were emphasis on what? They were, they were most interested in the working class, you know, factory workers. And there were. There were hundreds of thousands of factory workers, a couple of million factory workers in Russia, but again, not very many. So not surprisingly, the biggest revolutionary party in Russia was a thing called the Socialist that's right again, the Socialist Revolutionary Party or the Social Revolutionary Party. And it was more anarchist than Marxist. The, the, the SRs weren't really doctrinaire Marxists. And also, they were focused on the peasants. Although, if you tend to look at the leadership of the party, the one thing you're very hard pressed to find is a peasant. In the same way that if you look in the Bolsheviks or the Marxist parties and you look in the upper echelons, the higher you go, the fewer people who ever or even got near a factory was there. Mm -hmm. so, and again, Lenin never worked a day in his life in a factory. He was partially trained to be a lawyer. That was the only kind of training. How surprising that, that he would have. No, he never worked in a factory. He knew nothing about the day-to-day -day life of, of the proletariat in Russia. What about Trotsky? No, Trotsky came from, and, and here again, Trotsky came from a, a well-to-do Jewish family in what's today Ukraine, and his father was in business, and, and Trotsky's one of the things, you know, Trotsky's mother came from a wealthy family. He had three millionaire uncles. Well, two of them were at least millionaires. The other one was just rich. Back so, in the day, that's a lot of money, dude. He's yeah. surrounded by all of these. He comes from a background of wealth, but he becomes a Marxist revolutionary. Um, still on pretty good terms with his family, though. You know, he and Uncle Abram, the chief millionaire, got along just fine because Uncle Abram always thought there was some way he could possibly make money off of. <laughs> if my if my nephew ends up the head of the Soviet state, well. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, yeah. that, that could be good for the family under these kind of circumstances. But no, did Trotsky ever work a day in his life as a fact? No. Now, he was kind of a half-assed journalist most of the time, but he was also a full-time revolutionary, which he was waiting for history to make a job for him, which eventually he did. And then Joseph Stalin. What did Joseph? Well, Stalin spent time in, you know, he's not an ethnic Russian. He's from, he's from uh, kind of the Sicily of the Russian Empire, from Georgia. And uh, he came. He came, actually came from the closest you could call to a kind of poor background. I mean, it wasn't so much that his family was poor; it's just that his father was, you know, a near to well. I mean, they just didn't do well. They were kind of downwardly social, downwardly socially mobile. So, 
but but still, Stalin, you know, spent time in a seminary. You know, he, he trained for a while at the priesthood. He had some kind of, but again, sort of gravitated into the into the revolutionary underground. But no, he, he wasn't a factory worker. And if you go further down the Bolshevik hierarchy, the Soviet hierarchy, there's, you know, they're they're the sons, or in some cases, the daughters. That you know, school superintendents, uh, you know, you know, factory managers. Um, usually people, you know, again, from, from, from the middle classes, um, who I, yeah, I think often with good intentions are, are lead, but if you get into the situation that the people who are leading the struggle for the liberation of the working class aren't from the working class. Yeah. And there's always this, and inevitably that sort of brings in this sort of, well, you can see it in this country, and and if you tend to look in terms of what we would call the the American elite or the American establishment, yeah. well, those, those people who are generally on television or in the news media and who view themselves as you know people of intellect and education, is the one thing is the way in which they they actively despise a large part of the American public as being ignorant hicks. Yes. yes. All right. I mean, that pretty much, if you want to go back to it, the way in which the American elite has always thought of most of their countrymen is a bunch of ignorant hicks, which God has appointed them, the elite, to govern. If I mean, you, you could tell that during remember, COVID. If you remember during the end of the BLM marches, I would play a game called Find the Black Person yeah. at the BLM march, <laughs> so and it was all white women, middle and uh, upper class, Marching in those things. And this gets down to something I think is our wiring on this desire for fight and flight. And if you're born into an aristocratic family or upper middle to upper class, that's all taken care of. And in my humble opinion, you search out that. Even if it's somebody else's fight or flight, you search it out so you can fight for them because you need that. That's, we crave it. And that's why you see these same people, the same basic game plan being played here right now, right now, that was played in, in Russia for the uh, during the Bolshevik Revolution. Do you think? Do you think people now, uh, like Antifa, if, are they as activated? Because I'm I'm extrapolating the numbers you you mentioned there, a couple hundred thousand. You said maybe up to two million total people involved in the revolution, uh, which if you multiplied that. By you know the number of people in our country, we're talking what three, four million people, which I just don't think Antifa has that many people in its numbers, not at all, that are activated like the people you're talking about during the revolution. Uh, do you? I mean, do you think there's really a, a, a? There's no threat to overthrow the government in the country right now, though, right? It's more of a societal war. Would you say? I think uh, early in in the process. What What do you mean? It's, I mean, they're like they're getting together. The more Antifa's getting I just, together, I feel like we're. I, I, I'm just not. A, I'm not afraid of those people. I don't know. I just. I've never seen any of them that scared me. You know what I mean? I feel right, like it's right. overblown by the media to right. make us but, be afraid. But eventually, eventually, it. What? So, so all they talk about now is civil war. That's all they talk about. Bo both sides. Both sides. Yeah, that's on both sides. So it's like... I, I think that's the media, too. I don't, I don't hear know. anybody I know talking about so we'll, we'll figure it out. I don't know. Richard, thank you so much for coming on. This is... Okay. I love this conversation. This was 
wonderful, and I think it's a very important conversation to have, and one of the few places you can have this is uh, here on this show. One more time, tell them where they can find you uh, and all your lectures on the internet. Uh, well, the main place to look for me, if you're interested in things like that, would be go to The Great Courses or Wondrium. Uh, Google my name, Richard Spence, and you'll find the courses I've done there. Uh, the Real History of Secret Societies, uh, Crimes of the Century, and most recently, uh, Secrets of the Occult. And you can go to Amazon and, again, look for me and find my books. You know, the one most relevant today, uh, Wall Street uh, and the Russian Revolution, but the others are, are there as well. And, uh, you know, I, I have a lot of uh, unhealthy arcane interests that I'm always more than happy to, to share with you. <laughs> and um, I would just, you know, the one thing I, if I was just add anything to today would be is that if you find anything now that you like or that you don't like, if you find uh, anything going on in the world today, at some point in the past, in some way, it all happened before. 100% one hundred percent. That's from the Matrix. You're different than the ones that happened before. Great conversation. Thank you, Richard. Thank you all for tuning in. Love you guys very much. Again, got big shows coming tonight. We're in the rec room in Huntington Beach, and then I'm in Ventura on the weekend. Saturday night, come see me. I'm going to do stand-up, and then I'm ranting and raving for an hour. About, just going to talk about the world of... That is, I love you all very much. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I know I did. Thank you guys, and we will see you soon. Take care. We go deep, homeboy. Aaron, open your mind. Drink from the fountain of knowledge. There's lizard people everywhere. That's some interdimensional shit. Wake up, Aaron. This is only the beginning. There's you just blew my mind. Tim foil hack. Tim foil hack.